Hi, I'm Dr. Eric Hanberg. I'm a forensic pathologist and medical examiner, and this is Becoming a Medical Examiner. On this podcast, I interview medical examiners and I talk to them about what it's been like for them becoming a medical examiner, what it was like actually going through the process to get to do the job that we do. And today I'm joined by Dr. Francisco Diaz. Francisco, can you introduce yourself? Uh, Certainly. Thank you, Eric, for the invitation. My name is Francisco Diaz, and currently, as a medical examiner, I am the chief medical examiner in the District of Columbia, Washington, D.C. That's awesome. I'm so excited to talk to you. I I met you at the National Association of Medical Examiners meeting this year, and uh, I I was just so excited to get you on the podcast because I think you have such a unique, um, sort of a unique situation that you practice in, but we'll get to that a little bit. I, I always start this podcast with the same question because I think it's the one that we get most often, which is just what, what is it that we actually do? How do you describe what we actually do to people who are not doctors? Well, the best way that I explain it usually before juries is the medical examiner or in a lot of jurisdictions in the United States, the coroner has to determine why and how people die. In other words, we have to determine the cause of death. That's the reason why people die. And furthermore, we have to classify the manner of death for the purposes of public health statistics. So I'll give you an example somebody has a heart attack, well, that's the cause of death. And more often than not, then the manner of death will be natural. And medical examiners have five options or choices to classify the manner of death. One is natural. Another option is to classify the death as accident, for example, in a motor vehicle collision or an unintended drug-related death or drug overdose. Death could be classified as homicide when death happens as a result of the action of other or others. If death is self-inflicted, then it's classified as suicide. And finally, if we cannot classify it on the other four categories that I told you, then the manner of death is classified as undetermined. So medical examiners, those are our, our two main tasks, to determine how people die, and to classify that, how that death came about. And then how do you tell people actually how we go about making those determinations? We make the determination basically by when somebody died and the death is reported to a medical examiner's office or to a coroner's office, then based on the statute of that jurisdiction, we determine if the case pertains to the jurisdiction. More often than not, natural death do not belong into a medical examiner jurisdiction. But let's say that we accept jurisdiction of a death. Then we bring that decedent to the office and we do an examination. First, an external examination, making note of everything that is remarkable, starting with the clothing, starting with identification, starting with uh, fingerprints, for example, now that they are digital in, in my office. You guys do and digital fingerprints? We, we do. Oh, that's we so do. cool. <laughs> we do. And uh, it, it's a game changer from when I started doing forensic pathology nearly 27, 28 years ago, where majority of the time we use, or not majority of the time, we use 
paper with ink yeah. and submitted those fingerprints for evaluation. And that usually took several days, if not weeks. Now we have access uh, through technology to capture fingerprints, usually the index fingers of both hands, and it's digitally captured. And in a place like Washington, D.C., we have access to numerous databases uh, at the federal level, local level, and what have you. And usually that's the most expedite way to identify decisions. Uh, but your question was, how? what do we do? Then we make note of once the person is, is not wearing clothing, we start making notes of changes, changes on the skin, changes in the color of the skin, and, and so on and so forth. We are no different than any other physicians that as soon as they evaluate their patient in their head, they may already have differential diagnoses based on the appearance of their patient. And finally, after completing that external examination, then we proceed with an internal examination. Bear in mind that autopsy is a great term that means seeing with your own eyes. And the internal examination is that, examining the organs, dissecting the organs, looking for changes, looking, looking for injuries, following the path of those injuries if present and if pertinent, and also taking samples for toxicological studies to see what the person had in their system, whether it's prescription medication, what levels, common drugs of abuse, alcohol, or maybe poison. And we submit those samples uh, for further evaluation for toxicology. And once we have all those pieces of a puzzle together, then we can reach a conclusion as to why the person died. And based on the findings and based on the circumstances into which the person was found, also classifying how that death came about. Oh, that was a great explanation. Thank you. And you used two two things that just, boy, that's some of my favorite things to uh, to say when I talk about this job, which was you talked about puzzles, pieces of the puzzle, and you said differential diagnosis. And I don't know if anyone else has used that term before on this podcast, but I use that term a lot. And just for anyone who's listening that doesn't know what a differential diagnosis is, that's what uh, what doctors say when we're coming up with all the things that could fit this picture and slowly you narrow down that differential diagnosis. So chest pain, sure, it could be a heart attack, but it could be a pulmonary embolism. It could be costochondritis. It could be a lot of other things and slowly you narrow it down. So you're narrowing this differential diagnosis. And to me, that's, that's part of the big puzzle. And that's one of the reasons I love this job. And so I think that was a great explanation. Um, and I, I'm, I would be absolutely remiss if I didn't address it now, because I think that it's, it's going to be very interesting to a lot of people that listen, which is, I, I think based on your accent, it's reasonable to presume that you are from somewhere else. Where are you from? I was born and raised in Santo Domingo, capital city of the Dominican Republic. Yeah. Cool. So how long have you been in the United States? I came to do my residence in pathology in 1995. Cool. So you did, you did your, uh, primary education, like high school and college you did in the Dominican Republic. I certainly did. And 
the Dominican Republic, like a lot of Latin American countries, have a classic European medical training. And of those European countries that we try to mirror, the exception will be England, but that will be France or Spain, Italy. All those countries do not have undergraduate degrees. In other words, you go directly to the career of your choosing right after high school. The medical school tends to be longer as opposed to the United States because you already have done four years of undergraduate degree and then you do four years of medical school. In, in Latin America, you go directly and you do usually six years of medical school. So it's a compressed way of doing undergraduate and graduate kind of at the same time. Yeah, that's so interesting. I believe that's the way they do it in Denmark, which is where my, you know, sort of my heritage is. And it's such an interesting thing because, you know, I didn't go through that. I went through the system here. And when I hear about that one, I'm a little envious because you do get to finish a little bit faster, which is of course something that everybody wants to do. You know, it's, it's nicer to be done sooner, but what do you think? Do you feel like, uh, you know, if you had the choice to do either system and, and you were starting over, would you prefer to do it in the six year combined system like you did? Or do you think there's benefit to doing it in this sort of American way where we do undergrad followed by medical school? That is uh, the $1 million question. Because when you enter medical school or law school when you're 17, uh, you may not be entirely prepared and might not make it. However, if, you, if you're given the chance and had more maturity, you could make it. What I'm trying to say is I had a lot of colleagues of mine that started uh, medical school and fell through the cracks in the first two years or three years. I would say because of immaturity, they were 17, 18, and they had the potential, they had talent. Uh, So the four years undergraduate, I believe that helps into developing that maturity in basically forging your conviction that that's what you want to do. So there are advantages and disadvantages. In my case, I finished medical school when I was 22. And I was telling my wife, you know, there was no vacation. I went in a trimester system. So every, at the end of the the trimester, we have five business days off. Because I was that young and, and a lot of my colleagues were that young, you know, chances of you getting sick is nil. Yeah. So I finished, but I was 22. So, okay, what do I do now? And you don't, you know, you're already a medical doctor. And I did in, at the time in the Dominican Republic, and that was 30... 33 years ago, uh, you had to work for the government in order to get a license. And I did that, but still felt a little bit, you know, what am I going to do? How am I going to do it? Where am I going to do my specialty? Uh, The Dominican Republic is a small country, so you always look outward. Am I going to go to Spain? That's the motherland. Am I going to go to France? Am I going to go to Argentina? 
a lot of uh, my fellow Dominicans went to those places. Am I going to go to the United States? where I already had relatives who are physicians there. Am I going to go to Canada? So I say all that to say that both systems have their own merit. And it will depend on the level of maturity. Yes, I finished when I was 22, but I found myself, maybe I needed a little bit more cooking, not in terms of knowledge, <laughs> but in terms of, so some people, some people do it. I have a, like one of my fellow students, he finished like myself at 22 and at 24, he was already in residence in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And when I came to the States, I was 27. So, and like I said, I think if you take out of the equation my own example, I think there is a lot of people that are left on the road that would have made it if they have the benefit of an undergrad. That's my opinion comparing and contrasting both systems. Both have merit. Some people, they know exactly what they want to do it, and they know how they're going to accomplish that, and they don't need it. They, you know, let's go, and they do it. And But at that young age, I think you need also time to blow some steam to you know, uh, let me see the world a little bit. Okay, yeah. I'm done. Maybe I will go and, and spend three or four months in Europe and <laughs> come back. So there, there is, there is, uh, there is merit. You know, I, I, uh, I totally agree. I think that I, I might even take it a step further and say that it's not just to, to blow off steam, but I think that um, I always tell people they get so worked up about, oh, I don't know if I can go to medical school now. I'm already 26 years old. And I say, that's the perfect time to go. Go when you're 26 right. or when you're 30, because you have a little bit more knowledge about what the world is like. You've right. met people, you've dealt with people. So your interactions will be a little bit, I mean, you'll identify more with your patients who are, who are living their real lives. And, um, you know, I just think, I think that it's good for you to have some experience. And the other thing is med school is very hard. And residency is very hard. And if you've never had a real job, you won't have anything to compare it to. And so I think it's also good to to know that, you know, being an adult is hard. And so spending it in medical school hurts a little bit less when you go, well, I would be pretty unhappy too if I was working two jobs and working at a bar and doing, you know, whatever else. And so I think there's a lot of benefit to having a little bit of extra life experience. I know, and that's true, even if you know 100% you want to be a doctor, I still think it can be beneficial to give it a few years and do other things as well. There is no doubt about that. And that would be one of the, they are so concentrated. Let's see, uh, you only make it depending on the score you had on the MCAT despite of what they say, oh, no, we have a holistic approach on how to, uh, uh, for you to enter medical school. At the end of the day, it's all about your MCAT scores. Mm -hmm. And there's more to life than score you can have in a test. Life experience, being able to pivot if you have life experience, if you have work, because you have to make a living and you're working in an ER as an elderly, as a, you know, as a scribe or whatever it is, you've seen things. 
rather than to go directly and okay, I have 4.0 in in college and and I took my MCATs and but at the end of the day, you're in your first year of medical school and you really don't have any life experience. So that would be a criticism that a lot of emphasis is placed here on your scores, uh, even to enter college, whether it's ACT or SATs, you know, that, that's what it is. And I told my son that went to Ohio State and he said, I want to get into a great place. And I said, there's only one way. ACTs and you will see you will get in sure enough yeah and so it's, it's all based on those standardized tests and I think for to be a doctor it, it is great to have some life experience yeah I, I will say that I think that it's um not everyone can ace those tests and I and the med school classes are representative of that not every single person in there has a great score but getting a great score certainly is your biggest step up. That's, that's going to be, I mean, having great grades and a great MCAT score is going to be the number one way that you're going to increase your likelihood of getting in. But if you don't have those things, as long as they're still pretty good, you can make up for some of that with the additional life experience and having a, a, you know, reasonable story that explains why you want to do this. But that's, you know, that's the problem for the admissions committees and not me, but no when, <laughs> So you, you are 22 years old when you finish medical school, which is wild to me. I'm trying to think, I don't even know if I had started medical school by then. I don't think so. Um, so you're 22 when you finish and you're deciding where you want to go. Now, ultimately, did you decide to come to the United States directly after medical school or did you end up doing something? No, as I said, what they, what they used to do, I don't know if that's. Oh, you worked for the government. That's what years ago. Yes, and that's the only way you can get licensed. And you could say, okay, that's the way for that government to get cheap labor uh, <laughs> from people who are young, which is absolutely true. But you gain a lot of experience uh, working with meager resources, uh, improvising, trying to do the best you can. And you ended up l learning more than, than in medical school. So after that, um, so you did know, you work as I a general practitioner or did you? Uh, as, a, as a general practitioner. Okay. Yes. yes, you do a little bit of everything and uh, obviously not surgery or anything like that, but mainly primary care. Sure. And how long did you um, do that for? I did that for two years. That was the requirement at the time. Okay. And then after that, I decided, well, it's time for me to do a specialty and I decided the best training would be in the United States. So I started preparing for those tests. At the time, I think they have merged them into uh, a test for everybody, the USMLE, I believe. But in my time, there were tests administered by the Educational Commission for Foreign Medical Graduates. So you had to take a basic science, you know, that included a test that had biochemistry, pharmacology, anatomy, physiology, and what have you. And then you also had to take a clinical science test uh, with all the clinical uh, subjects. And then an English test. And meanwhile, I kept working as a general practitioner. And then I passed the test. And, you know, when you're for medical graduates, the only one way to get yourself known is to do externships. And while I was studying for those tests, I 
came to uh, Mount Sinai Medical Center in Miami Beach, Florida, because that's like an hour and a half flight from my native country. And I, I, I was always interested in pathology, did that for a few months, passed the test, uh, went into the match and matched. Interesting. So when did you know that you wanted to do forensic pathology? Did you know that going into pathology or were you thinking more general sort of like surgical pathology? No, I kind of did. I was always interested um, in in forensics because I was always curious uh, because I may be biased, but it's a more interesting specialty. Uh, <laughs> I'm in biased my opinion, too. In my opinion, the practice of medicine could be boring, meaning primary care, no offense to our colleagues, but you tend to do to see the same. And my best friend is a pediatrician, and he said the key of a great pediatrician is to know when to refer a case. Uh, the majority of the cases you're seeing are routine, you know, um, uh, the well-being checks, two months, four months, a year, and so on. Vaccinations, uh, patients have a cold, and and what have you. And then they have the outliers. And the key for him is to identify this is an outlier. This kid may have X, and I need to refer this kid to specialty hospital. In my opinion, and this is my opinion, um, internal medicine is kind of the same. I uh, it's a it's a gross generalization. That's how I felt. That doesn't make it true. Yeah. Uh, so I was always interesting that I thought every case in forensics is kind of different in a, in a way. And it's kind of a surprise. And in life, I think you better be lucky than good. So I imagine in a hospital in Western Pennsylvania, in the city of Jonestown, and they unbeknownst to me, they happened to the pathologists at that hospital who were APCP, uh, anatomic and clinical pathologists, they happened to do the forensic cases on behalf of the coroners of the surrounding counties. So to make a long story short, four years of APCP residency, I did nearly 250 forensic cases. Oh my God, that's uh, a lot. <laughs> that's, that so is far more because, than anyone does now. Because that's what I wanted from the get-go. And at the time in, in the 90s, hospitals, as a standard operating procedure, they did a lot of hospital autopsies. So that yeah. hospital had like 100, even though it was a community hospital, a large hospital, and then they did, on average, 200 cases for the coroners. Uh, and they cover like a, like an area of five, six counties. Obviously, there was a lot of motor vehicle collisions. It's a lot of cases. Not, you know, to my memory, maybe two homicides in four years. It's something that doesn't happen because the American Board of Pathology uh, basically stopped doing that, but two of my attendings were never trained in forensics in a fellowship, but they were board certified. Because oh, in the yeah. 70s, 80s, and 90s, you could apply for certification and sit for the test based on experience. Yeah, And obviously, they did have a lot of experience. 
So, like I said, maybe it's destiny. Uh, I always wanted to do it, and I landed in a place where they did the forensic cases. Wow, so, that's really interesting. That's a super. That I mean, was, that situation doesn't happen anymore. But that what a, no, what a unique opportunity for you. It, it was. It was so. By the time I finished residency, I I wouldn't say I knew a lot, but I had experience in, in forensic pathology. And then I went into the fellowship in the city of Philadelphia, also in, in Pennsylvania. Well, let me, let me ask. So when you started residency, I imagine that in medical school, you probably had some exposure to anatomy and you had, had a cadaver lab or something along those lines. Is that true? Yes. So... But I would imagine that your first exposure to what we would call a forensic autopsy would have been, I guess, for you in residency. Is that right? It was in residency. So yes. what was what was that like? Do you remember your first forensic autopsy and what you thought about that? As if it were yesterday. Can you tell me about it? You don't have to be about the specific case, but just more about you know what what you remember and what what it was that was so uh, interesting for you. First week I was on the autopsy rotation and the first forensic autopsy that came, uh, the coroner brought it, was an unfortunate gentleman that was writing what they called a an ultralight vehicle. And that's kind of like a glider type of plane. Oh, an ultralight plane? Oh my God. Yes. Yes, ultra. Yes, they, they used to call it at the time ultralight vehicles, ultralight plane. Yes, so obviously um, the ultralight plane fell and ended up killing him. So I do remember as if it were yesterday because of the extent of the injuries and the amount of blood. And for a second, I thought. Really, is this what I want to do? <laughs> and but it only took me a second, and after that, uh, um, I I kept getting cases. And it was, as I said, I was very lucky to end up in a place where they did the coroner's cases. So was there was there some particular case or some moment, some experience that you thought? okay, this is definitely what I want to do forever, or was it more just the fact that everything was different and you thought that this is so nice to have different cases? It was mainly that, that every case was different. Imagine that you are thinking about routine and then your first case is a, a person that fell from an ultralight plane and the following day is somebody that was found decomposed and nobody knows what happened and there's no medical history and there are no major findings. So just the, the sheer variety of the type of cases, I thought this is, this is fantastic. Uh, this is way better than surgical pathology. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I agree with you. I think a lot of people who are interested in forensics have a similar feeling. I, nothing. I mean, I say the same about all fields where I'm, I'm so glad that there are smart people that love doing all these things that I really don't want to do because we need them, but I don't want to do it. Right. We are the same. Yeah. So you said you did fellowship also in Pennsylvania. So let's see, you, you said med school 22, then 24 when you're done with 
uh, government work, and then you did four years of APCP. So you're 28 when you go off to fellowship. So no, no, no. I came to the United States. I was already 27. So I worked another another two years uh, taking those tests in order to qualify to do research in the United States. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so early 30s, and you're headed off to fellowship, and this is in Philadelphia. Yes. So this is this is, I imagine, the first big city that you've lived in in the United States. Unless was your residency also in a big city? No, not at all. It was in Western Pennsylvania, in the city of Jonestown. Oh yeah, uh, it's a county. The whole county is two hundred thousand people. Okay, so very, very different yeah. experience going to Philadelphia. What was that like? It was an eye opener, as I said. Even though we did the coroner's cases, in four years there were two homicides, and the two homicides happened to be domestic altercation cases. And so Philadelphia was I a little went, different. It was very different. Uh, at the time, they used to have 450 homicides. And I know the pace has not changed. I believe Philadelphia ended up in 2022, maybe with 590 homicides, if memory served me well. But the numbers were not that different in the late 90s. It was 450 homicides. And, and you had a variety, uh, separate and apart from the gunshot wounds, you have a lot of forced trauma, inflicted on forced trauma. Uh, it was a whole different experience, but I was lucky that, uh, again, that I had great mentors and uh, attendings with a lot of experience in forensic pathology. So what was fellowship like? I mean, this is a number of years ago now, and I imagine that the format of fellowship has probably changed a little bit since then, but what was, what was it like? Did it, was it a structured fellowship or was it more like a, just a mentorship? Was there, you know, did you go to scenes? Did you have specific lectures and a curriculum or was it just sort of follow along? How did it work? You was at the time more of a mentorship and we were, at the time, academically affiliated with the Medical College of Pennsylvania, but it was more of a mentorship. Uh, there were a few lectures, and it was basically you learn by doing. And then in the afternoons, you discuss the findings, and uh, the attendants with the more experience will tell you what their opinions were, what their previous encounters with similar cases, and how they approached them. So it was more of a mentorship. Interesting. Did you go to scenes like we do now in fellowship? Yes. Yes. Do you remember any yes. particular scenes that were especially sort of formative or, or memorable for you? Well, all the scenes were usually uh, in cases. That was the beginning to doing the child reenactment uh, there. Oh, interesting. And so, so we did some of that and that was a great experience. We went to homicides. We went to any, any type of scene. Interesting. So you went to, so when I, so I did fellowship in Miami and we went to any, we went to any homicide and we also would go to anything where the police called and said they, they found something odd and they just kind of wanted some extra eyes. We'd go to those, but that was pretty rare. But for the most part, we would just go to homicides. And I'll be honest and say most of the homicides were kind of, 
you know, there wasn't a lot for me to add. I'd get there and they'd say, okay, this guy has been shot in the head. Here's a video of him being shot in the head from three different angles from these security cameras. And he's already confessed and he's in prison and I say, okay, well, I agree with you guys. There's not a lot for me to add, but um, right. sometimes there was a lot. And, and so I think sometimes that maybe, maybe it would be good during training to go to more scenes that are not homicides uh, you know, the, the sort of questionable suicides or the, the really atypical accident scenes, I think are very interesting and, and can be, uh, very educational. Yes. And, and I think the forensic pathologist learns from going to the scenes, the context of how things may have developed, how things may have happened So the interaction with the people that are there, not only law enforcement, but if there is time, first responders, and more important than that, the next of kin that is there. So I think it's a very good experience because that way the forensic pathologist is not in a vacuum. Yeah. It's not somebody that is in an office. You've been there in the field. You know how emotional the scene could get, and you would understand and have more sympathy to the medical legal death investigators that go there, that maybe the reason they didn't get it, the information that you're seeking at the moment is because it was a really tough scene and some scenes could be difficult to manage even for law enforcement. So it's good to have that context. Oh, absolutely. And I think that uh, that's something I always tell people from, so prior to that, prior to uh, doing forensic pathology, I did emergency medicine for a little while. And one of the things that's so frustrating, I think all medical students can identify with is I'll go in and I'll ask all the questions to a patient. I'll get all my information, come out and present that patient to my chief resident or my attending. And then they'll go in and double check my work. They'll ask the same questions, get entirely different answers. And there's nothing more frustrating than I, I didn't lie to you. That's what they said to me before, but the story changed. And I think that's something that it helps to know, you know, going to scenes just because you ask someone a question doesn't mean the next time you ask them, they give the same answer. They will give the same answer. No, yeah, no, not at all. And, it, and it's, it's, it's good to know because unless, unless you've been through it, then you will understand that it's not an aseptic place. It's not an interrogation room. Yeah. It is chaotic in terms of emotion, in terms of everything. Oh, definitely. So you've, you do, you do your fellowship in Philadelphia fellowship. Um, I assume yours was also one year. It's still it it was, was one year. Yeah. yeah. So what, what did you do after that? Did you stay in Philadelphia? How long before you ended no. up in DC? No, no. I, uh, went, uh, work in, uh, at the office of the medical examiner in Wayne County, Michigan. Oh. where I was an assistant medical examiner from, uh, for 16 years. Did you say for 16 years you were there? Yes. Oh, yes. wow. So you went from, you went from, uh, Jonestown to Philadelphia and then up to Detroit. Up to Detroit. Yes. Wow. Okay. So then what was the, what did that feel like going from Philadelphia to Detroit? Did, did that feel like a similar thing or did it feel like a big change again? It, 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 it did. You mentioned that you train in Miami, and I think for the younger people listening, uh, it is important that uh, forensic pathologists, you could say, 
to borrow a, a term from uh, genealogy, we are descendants of certain people. So the people who train in Miami are descendants from Dr. Joe, Joe Davis. Yeah. And the way he trained people in Miami uh, has an impact for generations of forensic pathologists. Absolutely. So the people that train me in Philadelphia, they all work, or at least three of them work or were mentored or trained under Dr. Werner Spitz, ah. who came to Detroit as the chief medical examiner in Detroit in 1972. And he trained Dr. Merchandani, who became the chief in, in Philadelphia, as well as his deputy and a couple of the, the medical examiners as well. So in a way, I was trained in the same system created by Dr. Spitz, who created that when he was in Baltimore, took it to Detroit. And so when I made the transition of going to Philadelphia to Detroit, it was a very similar way to approach cases, a similar way to reason, uh, to do the reasoning for the cause and the manner of death and the opinion. So I fell into a place where I was very comfortable because it was the same line of forensic thinking. Yeah, God, that's so funny you mentioned that. I've never thought about that before, but I, uh, when I left fellowship, now my, my current chief medical examiner, he part of the reason he found me at all was he also trained in Miami, obviously many years ago. Um, and that's one of the things I, I guess I sort of take it for granted that I when I turn in my reports to him and when we talk about cases, the way we talk about cases, the way we think about cases, what we think are important, those things we line up all the time. I feel like, okay, my chief really gets me and he, he believes that I'm doing the right thing and I believe I'm doing the right thing, but it comes from our training. And I know that some of the people in my office that didn't train in Miami, they sometimes get frustrated with the two of us because you know they, they don't always agree with us. And so that's actually kind right. of a nice thing that I, I feel like, you know, working for somebody who has the same training genealogy, so to speak, uh, has been a really nice benefit. So I can see that. I can see if you went from Philadelphia to Detroit, but you had the same training genealogy there, that was probably a more comfortable situation. It was indeed. Yes. And then, so you were there for 16 years and then is that when you left for DC or did you have somewhere else in between? No, I worked 16 years as, a, as an assistant medical examiner in, in Wayne County, Michigan. That's a large county with 40 municipalities, uh, one of which is the city of Detroit, but it is one of the largest counties in the United States, territory-wise, and the number of municipalities on it. And I would say like 10 years into it, like uh, January of 2011 or 2012, if memory serves me, uh, we also became part of the University of Michigan Department of Pathology. In other words, the county made an agreement with the University of Michigan Department of Pathology where they would run uh, the medical examiner's office. And that was very, um, it was a very good experience for me, uh, because after being a medical examiner for 10 years, that gave us uh, an academic gravitas that maybe we didn't have 
and they encourage publications, presentations, and what have you. And and that, at least to myself, put me in a path of publications um, that I, before that, I had very few. And by the time I left Michigan, I already had 25 peer-reviewed publications under my name. So it was a great learning experience to work under the University of Michigan. Cool. I actually, now that you mentioned publications, I did want to ask, I didn't realize, and I hope this isn't offensive to say, I did not realize until someone recently pointed out to me when I was talking about how excited I was for this podcast, that your name is on the front of one of the most important textbooks in our field. Your name is on Spitz and Fisher. Yes. That's so interesting. Tell me about that. So for for people who I imagine that most people who listen to this probably have at least heard of that book. It's one of the first books I purchased in residency as sort of my mental, emotional commitment to doing forensic pathology. I bought this book, which is a a very classic textbook in forensic pathology. Um, And in, in medicine, for some reason, we always refer to textbooks, not by their title, but rather by their authors. And so I, it's, I'm actually not even sure what the the real title of the book is, but everyone calls it Spitz and Fisher, but your name is on there as well. What was that like? I am very honored and humbled by it. I met Dr. Spitz, obviously while in Michigan, he came to Michigan from Baltimore in 1972 that's the year he published his first edition. And I met him. Uh, I'm happy to say that he still works every day as a consultant. He turned 97 years old in August. Wow. So he's on his way to be 98. And he has more energy and more enthusiasm for forensic pathology than a lot of people that I know that are way younger than he is. So, he asked me to assist him and help him on the fifth edition of his book. I would say late 2014. So after that, basically we work every single weekend trying to uh, find the photograph that he had and in color and to digitize it. One of the features about uh, the Spitz book is the number of photographs. And there were published in black and white because when the, the editions came, 72, 80, 93, and 2006, it was expensive. But now with technology, it's not that expensive to, to have a book in color. So we, one of the main tasks other than uh, reviewing the chapters, rewriting the chapters, was to digitize all the photographs that he had in Kodachroms. And younger people don't know what that is, but you do, (laughs) right? So those are little squares that contain pictures, and there was a carousel where you put them, and then they projected on the the screen or on the wall. Uh, But Dr. Spitz go way back, way back, that he had something that I never seen before. So there was something before the Kodachrons. And those things are the size of an index card, completely made out of glass. So the photograph were containing a glass that <clears throat> probably measure the, each glass measure three inches by five inches or something like that. And they were kind of heavy. Okay. And they were in a frame, like in a metal frame, 
in order to come. So I asked him, so for the colochromes, it was a projector. And the projector, I don't know if you remember, but maybe a couple of pounds, yeah. three pounds, four pounds, something you could carry. Yeah. And he showed me the projector for the glass photograph. And that machine has to be, I don't know, 40 pounds. <laughs> so he said, so if you have a lecture, he said, oh, no, that's very easy. Like you put it, it has, it's a contraption that you put it kind of in a suitcase of sorts. That oh, my God. The suitcase come with it. And he said, if I travel, I just take the luggage. But that's how they gave lectures in the 1950s wow. and 60s. And oh, the quality incredible. of those glass photographs was outstanding, but we managed to digitize a lot of those photographs. And uh, so we worked basically from 2014 until the book came out in, in 2020, July of 2020. Oh my gosh. So that, that tells me two things that tells me one that I have, uh, apparently I, I own the previous edition because mine is black and white, but you're telling me the newest edition is not black and white anymore. It's in color. Completely. Oh, well, it looks like I'm going to have to buy another textbook. (laughs) That's so cool. Yes, you do. What a very interesting history. Oh yeah. Well, obviously I have to do that. And not only that, it, I think it's interesting for the younger people that will listen to the podcast. Uh, it's it's about loyalty and integrity because Dr. Spitz uh, typed the book in a typewriter. That's the way it was done in, in those days. And wow. it finished in the in the late 70s um, with the assistance of uh, people that help him and, and what have you. And he basically went through every publishing house for medical books. And at the time, they told him, no, forensic pathologist, not a medical specialty. I mean, if you're talking about surgery or cardiology, but no, we're not interested. So he was a little bit down because of those, but he had his manuscript and he was giving a lecture uh, a few months before he moved to Detroit, he was in Baltimore. He was the deputy chief in, in Baltimore. He gave a lecture to law enforcement, and he told me, like, um, an officer uh, for the Illinois State Police told him, Doug, I think this would be great if you turn into a book. I think a lot of people would buy it. Law enforcement attorney said, I've been trying, but all the medical publishers told me, no, I don't know what to do. He said, give me your manuscript, please trust me with it. And I know a publisher in Illinois that specializes in law enforcement type of book. And, you know, let me talk to him. He's a friend. And sure enough, that publishing house published the book. It became an instant success in 1972. And he said the following month, like all the major players in medical books were knocking on his door. And, he said, no, too late. I'm sorry. I'm going to go with this and 52 years. And he's still with that publishing house. Oh, what an incredible story. That's so interesting. And and that's sort of the way things still seem to work with forensics so often where for whatever reason, and I, I'm not, I'm not totally sure what it is. If it's just purely because our patients are dead or what, but we, I feel like we are often relegated into the not quite 
doctor realm, right? Like I think that clinicians don't, well, one, I don't think they really know about us until one of their patients dies and then they recognize us or, and I, and I think that, you know, in medical school, they don't really talk about our field very much. I think even in pathology residency now, it's still some people treat the specialty like it doesn't really belong, but you know, I still stand by, I think this is, I'm, I'm terribly happy with this job and I think it's, it's super fun and very interesting. Um, I think it's a, a diamond in the rough, so to speak, but it's just yeah, really interesting that even the book publishers treated us that way. Yes. So interesting. Yeah. So let's, I, I want to talk just a little bit about, um, you have this really unique perspective because I mean, one for all the things we talked about for having trained in another country and and having gone through that. But I think you have now a very unique perspective because you practice in a very strange setting in the United States. You practice in Washington, D.C., where there is a much higher density of things that you wouldn't see elsewhere. I mean, you see a lot of political sort of high action players. There's a lot of um, embassies. There's a lot of just sort of unique situations. And I was wondering if you could, when we met at name, you told me a little bit about some of the difficulties that the proximity of the embassies present. Would you be able to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, I came to work in, in Washington DC in 2017. I came as the deputy chief medical examiner, June, July of 2017. And then in January of 2021, I was appointed as the chief medical examiner. So it's been three years as the chief, and this will be my seventh year in Washington, D.C. And as you know, um, Washington is the seat of the federal government, and as such, it's the capital city of the United States. And then foreign governments that have uh, diplomatic relations, they have their embassies. And embassies are sovereign territories. So we have in D.C. 185 embassies. 185 different countries represented here. So the residency of the ambassador and the place where the embassy offices are is considered or are considered sovereign territory. So nobody has jurisdiction unless it's by invitation with the ambassador. When a death happens and they don't have who would sign the death certificate, then a coordination needs to happen with the State Department. The State Department in the United States is the equivalent of other countries of the Ministry of Foreign Relations. So it has to be coordinated with the State Department. And if the death happens in the embassy itself, uh, then the medical examiner will go by invitation of the ambassador. And it goes without saying that there there are hundreds of Uh, people that have diplomatic immunity. Also, those people, uh, uh, they do not fall under the jurisdiction of the medical examiner when a death occurs. It is not difficult dealing with the State Department when such cases arises because at the end of the day, everybody needs a death certification, but it poses a unique challenge that uh, no other jurisdiction probably has to deal with. Except maybe New York, because the United United Nations headquarters is in New York City. So you will be dealing with a lot of diplomats with immunity. So when when someone dies in an embassy, so just to make sure that I'm understanding right. So 
you have 180, 185, I think you said, different embassies there. So that's effectively 185 different countries with a little a little footprint there in Washington, D.C. And so when someone dies there, they still have to get a, that, a death certificate and they would call you. And then do you physically go like, can you do they is it a medical examiner or can you send a representative like a death investigator? It could be, but we cannot physically go into the embassy unless there is an invitation uh, by the ambassador or the ambassador's designee and it's coordinated through the State Department. So they are very good at it. The State Department has that, uh, let's say, narrowed down and they have their liaisons and it just requires coordination. And if you remember, if you were in Miami and you said, okay, uh, something that happens in Homestead, Florida, okay, that's the county, that's my jurisdiction. I'm going, but if there is a decision in an embassy, that's a whole other scenario. So when, I assume by now you've, you've gotten at least a few of these calls from embassies. Have you ever personally gone to the embassies to, to investigate these deaths via have, invitation? Yes. What, what is that I like? Have, yes. Does it feel like a normal death scene or is it, are you more scrutinized? What, what is that like? No, not, not at all. Not at all. At the end of the day, uh, when death occurs and, you know, uh, I think young people, uh, uh, need to know that majority of people died a natural death. And that's the type of situations we encounter at the end of the day, you have a dead person in a place of residence and everybody involved want the issue resolved and the next of can notified and what are they going to do with the, with the body? What is different is how you deal with it. You cannot go barging in and you have to make, for lack of a better term, you have to make diplomatic efforts to get things accomplished. That's so interesting. And, and that's just in dealing with the foreign governments, but I imagine our own government probably represents a lot of sort of frustration and difficulty sometimes. And I, I would think given the federal government and the proximity, I would think that that probably presents some, at least the semblance of pressure. I mean, you were, you would have been there for uh, all the happenings on, on January 16th. And so I imagine that there was uh, you know, I know that there was at least one death associated with that. And did, did you feel like there was additional pressures that came from that or did it feel like a sort of a normal day at the office? No, uh, the, uh, my office depends from the city and I had nothing but support from the city and their leaders in terms of the independence of the medical examiner. Um, and I was told in no uncertain terms that I had to do what I had to do. And so there was no pressure whatsoever from, from local government or any other entity other than uh, what you saw in the press. So we came to our determination, uh, the time that is uh, allotted by the National Association of Medical Examiners. And there was nothing but support from um, the people that that provide our budget, that provide oversight, if you would. Mm -hmm. So... I felt that the office of the medical examiner in Washington is a truly independent office in terms of uh, influence, in terms of everything. Um, 
things that occurred in Washington, D.C. tend to get magnified by the national press, but it's no different than any other jurisdiction. You, you have a job to do, and you concentrate on that job, and and, and that's that. Wow, that's great. That's actually really great to hear because that's something that I think I would have been sort of innately concerned about in a situation like that, especially, I mean, I, I certainly can understand the situation with the foreign governments and how you have to play the dip, diplomatic game to work with them. But when it comes to our own government, I think especially when it comes to people who otherwise have a pretty significant position of power, you know, like senators or something, I would think that it would be hard for them to understand that, you know, when it comes to what we do, even with their influence, it can't influence us. We must remain independent. And I, it's really cool to hear that that's actually being respected. And, and that's wonderful. I, I do think that for the most part, that's true in the United States. There are, of course, exceptions where influence does uh, does play a part, but it sounds like it's not happening there. So that's great. No, it is. It is. Let me ask um, just a little bit. So I, I like to ask people a little bit more about what it actually feels like to do this job. So if you don't mind me asking, how how long or around about how long have you been a forensic pathologist now? Well, if you count residency, 28, 29 years. Okay. So we're, we're in, we're above 25 years of forensic pathology, 25 to 30 years. And at this point, when you've been doing it for this long and you've been so embedded, you've, you've got your name on, on the front of one of our major textbooks, do you, do you still find significant challenges in this job, emotional or intellectual challenges, or does it feel more like a rote job at this point? No, I think that forensic pathology, that's what, as we were talking at the beginning, that's what make, makes it a unique specialty. Every day is different. Every day comes with its own challenges. Me personally, I think I reached 10,000 autopsies, even though I'm the chief, I still do autopsies. And I find that the, the performance of an autopsy, I still find it fascinating. And even after 28, 29 years and 10,000 autopsies, I still get surprised from time to time. So I don't see anything routine other than the administration may take a toll. When I say administrative duties, that you have to take care of uh, personnel, that you need to advocate for salary, you need to advocate for working conditions, you need to advocate for your budget, uh, for your procurement. Uh, the last seven, eight months have been challenging because I was also asked to be the director of another agency uh, in our building, which is the Department of Forensic Sciences, uh, because they had issues with their accreditation. But in December, they regained their accreditation. So I feel that that was an accomplishment of the whole team but as it is right now, I am leading two agencies. We're in the same building, the Chief Medical Examiner and the Department of Forensic Sciences. So I have, under my leadership, 450 people. Wow. So that is a, that is a task that, in terms of the responsibility that that implies, 
Um, however, I am of the opinion that the more experience you have and the more you have to share, if you're asked uh, to take on a leadership role, I think it behooves you to do it. Uh, because if you have that experience and you feel you can contribute and and the leaders of your jurisdiction feel that you could accomplish that task, as tiring as it might be, I think it's very rewarding at the end. Yeah, it sounds like, I mean, with, with that many people under you, I, I guess what I'm going to say is when people talk about this job, when they talk to me about what it's like to do my job, one of the main things that they're concerned with is just how sad it is and how emotionally difficult it is. And I, I think that the majority of everyone I talk to, there are occasionally frustrations that come with working as a medical examiner, but it seems like the majority of our frustrations don't come from the part that is medical examiner. It just comes from the part that is working paperwork, HR difficulties, funding, the same thing that you get with any other job. Those are frustrations for us too, but the actual medical part of it doesn't seem to be as emotionally distressing to us as it might seem from the outside. I mean, but I'll say for me, I, I still find some emotional distress in, in some cases, not, not enough to prevent me from doing my job, but it does affect me when I, when I see, you know, horrific violence, when I see horrible accidents, things that happen when they shouldn't children, that kind of thing. Do you, do you find any emotional struggle anymore or have sure. you grown sort sure. of? No, sure. Yeah. Still to this day. And, and that's important for younger people to, to realize that in forensic pathology, <coughs> I'm sorry, as a practitioner, not every day you're going to be the same. So some days cases, similar cases that you have performed before, you may react differently. And that would be an equation of maybe what's going on in your personal life, maybe uh, the end result of pressures that you are under. So you may question yourself, why if I, if I have motor vehicular collisions, 1,200 of those, why am I reacting this way or why this one is taking a toll? It's because not every day is the same, and and you have to acknowledge that. It's, forensic pathology has an advantage is that your knowledge may be cumulative, your experience may be cumulative, but the emotions that go into it are not cumulative. Just because you've done 25 child abuse doesn't mean that the 26 is not going to be the one that may break you for a moment or two for a period of time. So you don't have the advantage of that experience, if you would. And you have to be cognizant of that, that not every day you're going to react the same way. Some days are not just not that great to, uh, in terms of having an, an emotional reaction. Yeah, that's such a good point. I, I've never thought of it that way as being, you know, what's different uh, when a case affects me might not even be the case, but it might just be me. That's such a good point. Yeah, that's cool. So what, um, what do you feel like, it, how, how have the people in your life, your family, your friends, how have they adapted to you doing this job? Do, do your family and friends think that it's a strange job? Do they like your stories? Do they think you're weird? Uh, all of the above. All of the above. <laughs> uh, and I always say my mom, uh, used to say,
say years ago to her friends, oh no, my son works uh, in a hospital. He said, no, mom, it's at the morgue. <laughs> and, uh, but I'm lucky that my wife uh, also is in the same field. And that's a great advantage. Now, do you, do you have children? Yes, we do have three, yes. How did you explain to them what it is that you do? When did they sort of understand that, that dad does autopsies? Since, since the beginning, and our um, oldest is 26, and he's an economist slash banker. But when I was in Michigan, he went to school in Ohio. Uh, sometimes I did private autopsies in Ohio, and he assisted me in exchange for compensation, but he did it <laughs> while, he was, uh, <laughs> while he was an economics background or, or undergrad. So he did it. Interesting. So how has this job done anything? Like, have you, have you changed anything about the way that you live your personal life based on things that you've seen in this job? And I think one of the things to your point at the beginning, where a lot of our colleagues in, in medicine do not know what we do, how we do it, why we do it, I think is because in Western society, I think there is a denial of death as if it's never going to happen. And that goes hand in hand with what we do and how people view what we do, then on, on one hand, they think it's very cool. On the other hand, they don't want to deal with it because they don't want to face their own mortality. And when you are doing this every day, you are keenly aware of everything. And I wouldn't say it makes you more paranoid, but at the very least, it makes you aware of your mortality that we are here now and 10 seconds later, we might not be. Mm-hmm. And, and we are one of the few other than people who are doing similar things like funeral directors and, 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 and so on that, that have that view. Uh, in, in, in a, any Western country, you name it, it's, it's a complete denial that, that death is never going to come. Mm-hmm. When in, in reality, nobody has escaped it. So. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I have always said that I, or I guess I shouldn't say always, but when I, when I'm asked this question or when I think about it for myself, I say that there's nothing that I would otherwise do that I have stopped doing because of this job. But it does actually, I would say if anything, it's made me do more things because I don't, I don't feel as though I can count on, you know, I can just do that next year. Or I, 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 it's not a morose view. I don't anticipate myself dying, but I just don't delay things as much because I, I think I do acknowledge mortality a little bit more than I would have otherwise. Do you find that there's anything you would otherwise do that you don't because of the job? No, I try, uh, I'm not a one to be too jocular, but I try not to do stupid things because I've seen <laughs> a lot of people die doing stupid things. Yeah. So I take it you don't also ride a motorcycle like I do. <laughs> I don't <laughs> never, ever in my life. Not ever, no. Yeah. That's the but one that, that always that surprises will, that people. That will not qualify stupid. You know, it's a, it's a choice, but I've seen people doing a lot of things they should not be doing. 
Yeah, I mean, I I would say I've seen a lot of people doing a lot of things they should not be doing. I agree with that entirely. So I think um, in general, so that we're we're a little past an hour here, so I don't want to take up your whole night, but because we talk about a lot of sort of intense stuff and stuff related to death. I do like to ask a couple of questions at the end that are just a little bit more lighthearted. So let me ask if you were not a medical examiner, if you were not a forensic pathologist, what would you want to do both in medicine and outside of medicine? What would you want to do? Well, outside of medicine, I am a voracious reader. I love history. So I think if, if I were not a forensic pathologist, probably would have been a historian. A historian. I yes, I love it. Oh, interesting. You know, yeah. I I was just, gosh, I, it probably was in this podcast, but I was talking to someone recently about how I think, I think in some ways this modern boom that we have in, or I, you know, I say modern, I guess it's like a very recent boom. We have an interest in true crime, I think is very similar to an interest in history where you study these what tend to be pretty horrific, intense, life-changing events, world-changing events. Um, and and it's there's something gratifying about trying to understand those past events. I'm still working on the idea. I don't know if I think I totally agree with myself yeah, yet, yeah. but I think in some ways that is sort of what history feels like to me is it's studying these events and trying to figure out what we can learn from them like people do with true crime. Right, right. So any particular history event that you specialize in? No, I, I love any type of history. I love medieval history. I like uh, uh, more contemporary history. I am, uh, like I said, I'm a voracious reader of anything that is history and, and other topics. So you could say I'm interested in literature as well. So hmm, Cool. I, I, unfortunately, this is where I out myself as not being much of a reader. I read textbooks with my eyes and then I, I quote unquote, read audio books for fiction books and things, but I pretty much just do that while I do the laundry or the dishes or something. I, I don't, uh, I, I love books. I wish I should devote more time to it, but I just haven't, at least not lately. And then I, what, what about if you were a different type of doctor, a different, uh, specialty in medicine, what do you think you'd want to do? That's a question that nobody has asked me before. Really? And no. Oh. No. Okay. No. No, I think I think I would have been a very good primary care physician um, because I think I connect well with people. And at the end of the day, uh, it's how you connect with the patient. Yeah. So I would have no problem being an internist or a pediatrician for that. Oh, that's really cool. I think you're the first person who is, who said they would do primary care. And that's very interesting because I think there are a lot of, um, sort of crossover between us and primary care. Now we don't speak directly to our, our patients, but we do speak to families a lot. And a lot of the time it comes down to questions that a primary care doctor would answer. What, what is hypertension? How did it affect them? Absolutely. Talking about that Absolutely. kind of thing and preventative care for the family is something we do a lot. So that's a really good point. Absolutely. Yes. So the last question I have for you, and I'll warn you, this is the one that people tend to find the most difficult to answer is, is I want you to tell me about some time in your life, whether it's related to being a doctor or not, that made you laugh really hard. I'm not asking you to make me laugh. You don't have to tell me a joke. I don't even have to understand why it's funny. I just want to hear about a time that you laughed. 
all the time. I love comedy. And well, I you think do. that's my outlet. I, that's my outlet because I am maybe too intellectual because of my interest in medicine, history, literature. And I love stand-up comedy. That's a concept stand-up comedy that uh, didn't exist in Latin America in the 80s or the 70s where I grew up. So when I came here, I found it fascinating. So I love um, stand-up comedy or any type of Oh, that's awesome. That's a great outlet from forensic pathology, you know, from the movie Film and Dumber or things like that. I, I love it, you know. Well, so when I tell that to people, I said, you, you, you're such an intellectual. I said, no, that is a great, uh, it's a great way to forget about things for an hour or so. Absolutely. Well, I got to tell you that if I ever have the opportunity to go to a stand-up show or watch Dumb and Dumber or something like that with you, Francisco, I really want to do it. That would be so much fun for me. I love stand-up comedy. I, I really do. It's been like a lifelong interest of mine. And so that would be so fun. And, uh, but with that, I'm going to, I'll, I'll say that we're at the end of the podcast. And so I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and, and generally at the end, I give a chance, just the people who listen to this podcast, they tend to be people who are interested in becoming forensic pathologists themselves, or they're just people who are interested in what we do. Usually they're interested in medicine. So are there any pearls of wisdom, anything that you want to tell them just in general? Well, from an older person that's been in this uh, field for three decades now, and I will be 57 in February, what I encourage people that want to follow into this field or that have an interest, once you have experience, do not fall into the belief that I just want to do autopsies and go home. I want to do eggs and go home. I think that is erroneous. That's a personal opinion. But the more experience you have, the more you need to share that experience and the more you need to take more responsibility after you have accumulated that experience. I respect uh, other people's opinion when they say, well, you know, the only thing I want to do is autopsies and then I don't want to do anything else. I think that you need, when the time comes, and some people listening to us maybe in their early 20s, they don't think it will happen, but it will happen that you should take more responsibilities and to advocate for the field you're in. And if you take the posture that you're going to limit yourself to one thing, you're not going to be, be able to advocate. You're not going to be able to broadcast uh, the benefits of what you do. Wow. What a very generous perspective that is. That's awesome. I, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time today to tell us what it's been like for you becoming a medical examiner. And do you have any social media or anything that you want to share? I don't. That's what I show my age. I don't have any <laughs> social media. <laughs> That's totally okay. You are not the only one on the podcast who didn't have any. But uh, if anyone wants to get a hold of me, I'm at the Forensic MD on all services, X, TikTok, Instagram, I think Facebook, YouTube, the rest of it. So at the Forensic MD. And if you are interested in forensic pathology, I recommend you check out the Reddit uh, for forensic pathology. That's reddit.com slash r slash forensic pathology. There are some sticky posts that talk about the process of becoming a forensic 
pathologists, all the school, you have to do that kind of thing. There are also a lot of forensic pathologists on there that are happy to talk about the field and answer questions. Um, if you're interested in forensics, but you don't necessarily want to go to medical school to do exactly what I do, but you just want to be part of the field, I also recommend going to reddit.com slash r slash forensics. And there are a lot of forensic professionals, forensic toxicologists, uh, medical legal death investigators, people on there that you can talk to and find out more about those careers. Otherwise, um, if you're interested in some educational materials, I would say go to thename.org. That's T-H-E-N-A-M-E.org. That's the National Association of Medical Examiners website. There's educational materials. And if you are looking to hire a forensic pathologist to do a private autopsy, they have contact information on there. But yeah, I think that'll do it for us. Thank you so much again, Dr. Diaz, for uh, telling us what it's been like for you becoming a medical examiner. And I will see you guys next time. 